Episode 118, recorded on June 21st, 2021. We're your host, Drew and Tim, and on tonight's show, we dive deep, literally and figuratively, as we look back at Atlantis, The Lost Empire. 20 years after the film's debut, we try and figure out if this movie is actually a flop, or if it's actually a forgotten classic. And as always, this episode is sponsored by Wish Upon Magic, an Etsy experience specializing stickers, keychains, Mickey ears, and handmade home goods, where a portion of every purchase goes to the Make-A-Wish Foundation to help and spread the magic. You know what, Drew? This week, I figured there's no way that this obscure 20-year-old forgotten movie they have stickers for. Guess what? They do. They have an awesome... Uh, sticker from their passport series of of what the passport stamp for the fictional city of Atlantis would look like, and this amazing uh, photograph sticker that has uh, the photo of Milo and his grandpa with the note he writes on it at the end, and the necklace uh, on top of a stack of photos that he took when he was on the expedition. So two awesome Atlantis items. Goes to show you, Wish Upon Magic, they probably have something for even the most niche Disney interest you could have. So check them out at Wish Upon Magic, uh, Etsy, and at their website, www.wishuponmagic.com, where you can find magical new selections every week. And as always, this episode is brought to you, to, brought to you by you with Patreon. For less than a cup of coffee a week, You can uh, help us continue to make this show more awesome for you guys. And that's at patreon.com slash the Disney guys uncensored. Yes. And Tim, I have to, you know, before we get started, uh, you, Bob and Jordana did a fabulous job last week with the small world. Uh, Yeah, it's one of my non-favorite rides, mostly because it's a boat ride, right? As we all know. But I was fortunate I was busy. I couldn't join you guys. But I do have some uh, beef to pick, I guess I should say. Uh, there were several things as I was listening, but one particular thing that jumped out, I remember towards the end, we talked about putting IPs in the attraction. And Bob says, uh, something online sounds something like Drew would be all for. And uh, Bob is correct. I am all for putting IPs in this attraction. I think it adds a little bit of flavor and more fun. I get the whole concept of Small World. Uh, but here's the folks, people. Uh, well, here's the facts, people, is that Everyone hates change in these classic rides, right? Here's what change does for Walt Disney World and Disneyland and all over the world. Change in types of these rides puts an attraction like it's a small world that maybe has this 20 to 30 minute wait or less. Now 
you start adding something different to this ride, whether it's IP dolls or whatever it might be. Now it's new. It's fresh. People want to go back on this ride. This is an attraction for me that is almost in a way I don't have to go on every single trip. But when they add new things like this to a new ride, it makes everybody want to go back to it. And why is that good? It's good for you folks because it draws the, the, the line weights and it draws a, a, you know attention off of other attractions. Hence, maybe Peter Pan's flight right across the way and moves it to another attraction. So yeah, you know, a little bitter, but it, it's okay for change, uh, specifically, you know, specifically for rides like this. I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Um, but Tim, that's that's how I feel about it. So that's right. You heard it here first. Drew wants uh, BB-8 and then like <laughs> Rocket and Groot hanging yeah. out with uh, you know the singing cactus and the rhinoceros and the hippopotamus. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you go to the next room. And he's gonna take all the dolls out of that finale scene. And just add uh, the cast of High School Musical. Uh, you know, you know that, that's really what Drew's looking for. He said, anything Walt made, it's old. It's not worth having in the park anymore. Yeah. We need to modernize. We need to update. Uh, that, that's I mean, that's it, it his opinion, like a, folks. It sounds like a genius idea, Tim. It should be uh, the IP world, right? Where each room is, you know, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, live action, you know, Disney Channel. Why not? Every room now could yeah. be its own IP. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Uh, <laughs> the carousel, carousel of progress, not enough action. We're going to turn that into a thrill ride, folks. It's going <laughs> to spin around like one of those Gravitrons at the State That's Fair. Right. Not a ton of news this week. Uh, a couple of big stories, the least of which, Anime Kingdom Lodge. We finally have a reopening date for the last of the deluxes. Of course, just like all the other deluxe resorts, some parts of it have been open due to uh, the DVC portion being open. Uh, but the whole resort will open on August 26th. Uh, hopefully this means that the restaurants other than Sanaa we will also see reopen. And it will be also be interesting since, uh, as we've said a couple times, we have seen several of the traditional buffet restaurants reopen, but not as buffets. So I'll be interested to see what happens if and when Boma reopens at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Uh, big news story this week. Fireworks are back. Yes. Both Coast, July 1st at Walt Disney World, July 4th at Disneyland Resort. And the hours uh, have been extended to accommodate. Uh, we're looking at uh, Magic Kingdom and Epcot. Still Epcot forever. No date yet for Harmonious, but I suspect with all the barges in position, uh, locals have been reporting tons of Harmonious testing. Uh, I think we will not see too many weeks of uh, Epcot forever before they uh, open up Harmonious. Or we could see them hold back Harmonious until we're like deeper into the 50th, because that's a pretty big, uh, big upgrade. What do you think? Yeah, see that that's tricky, and I'm afraid that's true. Like you know, the you know mid and summer would be a perfect release time. But I agree with the 50th and Epcot under so much construction right now uh, that you know they might want to just wait and hold it off until it's more of a you know the, the centralized stuff done. But yeah, you know that that's a tough one to say. Uh, this should be one of those things that Disney finishes and they kind of just sit on it, Tim, to to release it at the right time. I I, I believe that is correct. I agree with you there. Yeah, I think that, I just think during the 50th, they're going to need stuff to draw people out of Magic Kingdom and out of Hollywood Studios. And, and there's not a lot drawing people to Epcot at night. The festivals can do it during the day for a certain crowd. 
But there's not a hell of a lot of reason that that you have right now to head over to the open construction zone that is Epcot and will continue to be Epcot for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So they, I, I, I see them saving uh, Harmonious. Uh other big news this week over at Universal, Halloween Horror Nights are back. I don't think anybody doubted this since they ran a very modified version of this uh, last year, even with uh, limited park uh, opening due to COVID. But it's back for its 30th season. Select nights from September 3rd to October 31st. Uh, Beetlejuice is the only announced house at the moment, but this will probably be the biggest, grandest version of this ever, being the 30th anniversary being that they couldn't do it last year and uh, that people just absolutely love this. Horror fans travel from all over the country to go to this. So I, I expect we will see some crazy houses. Uh, there's been a lot of good horror movies that have come out. And uh, lately, the original houses from uh, Universal have been pretty amazing. Uh, and if you are looking for tickets to that, uh, I'm not sure when they go on sale. But Jordana Izzo at Travelmation.com certainly does. I know she is has a goal to book 50 vacations before she has this kid in August and she is in the home stretch. So if you are thinking about a universal trip for horror nights to check out those new resorts or a Disney trip for the 50th, hit up Jordan Izzo at travelmation.net. The last story of the week, it pains me to, uh, to report this one because I don't really want to give these people more publicity, but this is the only Disney story of the week or theme park story of the week that's crossed over in the mainstream paths. Uh, you probably saw it all over your TikToks, your Instagrams, your Facebook. Uh, a woman left the moving, uh, living with the land boat and, uh, ran up on the shore, picked a cucumber off one of the vines, then attempted to get back in the boat, almost fell in the water, got <laughs> grabbed Classic. by a passenger who got out to help her, got back in the boat, continued on. The video doesn't show what the conclusion was. I don't really bother looking it up because the whole thing was kind of disgusting. Don't do this. Even if you're Drew and you hate boats and you hate living with the land and you wish they would demolish the whole thing, this is just idiotic and disrespectful. It's not cool. It's not funny. This is not the good kind of internet famous. I don't know. That's my take on it. I I agree. I mean, uh, you know, hey, maybe uh, maybe this should help me out and realize that living the land is not something that should be open to uh, the visitors. But no, I don't. The whole seriousness, you guys, uh, this is something that we don't condole, even being the uncensored that we are. Um, I'm going to be honest. I didn't look it up either, but there's a good chance this person is banned from Disney for life. Uh, That's what that's what happens when you when you do these types of things on attractions. Uh, Not only one. Uh, you know, it's almost like trespassing. Two, you're putting yourself and really other people on the attraction at danger. Uh, you know, who knows what would have happened if really she fell off and got stuck on the uh, between the boat and something could have happened. You never know. Uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, not to mention like it. this is the one ride where food safety comes into effect. Like the food they grow on Living in the Land is the food you are eating in the restaurants throughout property. So like. You don't want people running around and contaminating that environment, you know? I mean, a cucumber. I mean, what, what, what's what's the plan here? You just going to have a little snack for the rest of the ride? Yeah. Yeah. It, just keep your hands and arms inside the uh, boat at all times. Mm. And that is it for news this week. Uh, on to the main topic.
In a single day, in night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis disappeared into the depths of the sea. That is the famous Plato, um, who has a heavy influence in the movie Atlantis and the Lost Empire. Um, and that is the first thing you see on the screen when you start up this Disney classic. Um, before we even get started, Tim, I have to say, this is a film that I never know. I, I want to say I don't know if I ever really saw it from sit down to finish. Maybe when I was really young. Well, not really that young because it's only 20 years old. But maybe back in the day I seen pieces of it. But I didn't really remember it. But when we decided we were going to do this for the 20th anniversary, I started looking into the film. Lab, I said, this film seems like it's my cup of tea. Like, it, you know exploration a journey discovery you know like lost empire like this is like that's i love that stuff this could in my mind i'm saying this should secretly be like my next black cauldron uh, maybe not that good but uh close so uh i was excited that you wanted to do this i know you're a big fan and i'm, I'm excited we kind of decided on this so so tim what's what's your history really with the film and and where and why we're here today talking about it uh, I loved this movie. I, I, I loved it. I was right at the kind of target age when it came. I mean, we're the same age, but, mm -hmm. you know, we were definitely a Disney animated movie family. And I was super excited that there was this action adventure sort of movie coming out when I was, uh, you know, young, young, young teen slash like upper elementary school kid. Um, this was literally the first thing I put on when Disney Plus came out. This this and then Treasure Planet, which are my two Kind of the very similar vein, but two two big ones for me. Uh, so I was very excited to uh, to talk about this this week, uh, since it is the 20th anniversary of it. Uh, actually, literally the 20th anniversary was uh, last week. Yep. Um, it premiered at the El Capitan Theater, as so many Disney films do, in Hollywood, California, on June 3rd, 2001, and went into a wide release on June 15th. Uh, the cast, the real highlight is uh, Michael J. Fox played the lead. And uh, this was Jim Varney's final appearance. Uh, well, it was voice. Uh, it actually came out after his death, uh, tragic death from lung cancer. Jim Varney, famous for the earnest films among many, many comedic and voice acting roles throughout the year. Uh, notable is for as sprawling and expansive and big budget animated film this was, the rest of the cast was really uh, people who are known as voice actors. Like, if you look at this cast, you do not really see a lot of those celebrity names. You see people who uh, you're familiar with if you're you're very into uh, animation and, and voice uh, voice acting type movies. Mm -hmm. uh, probably people that past guest of the show Bill Timoney uh, knows a lot of yes. a lot of those sorts of people. Uh, I, I know some of the people he even mentioned on his episode, uh, I recognize from the credits of this movie. Uh, notably, this movie has one of the lowest Rotten Tomato scores of any Disney film. It sits at only a 49%. And if you put that to top critics, it drops all the way down to 42 or 43%, Drew. Uh, mm. What do you that's, think about that? Do, do that, you think that, that's, that's warranted? I think I think it's rough, right? Um, I think... I think it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say a confusing movie, but like I said, at the, at the fingertips, you're not really sure what this is. And, you know, we'll get into it a little bit about the production, right? But it's coming off, like you said, some big time producers, some, some big time moviegoers. Um, really, I think Don, what Don Hahn was the producer. 
Yep. yep. Um, who, who just came off, you know, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, um, and and he 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 wanted to make something totally different, right? He didn't want to make a musical. So I think it's a little misleading uh, on what this movie is supposed to be. And and I said to you, it's funny because right when the movie starts, they show this really good like action history scene of Atlantis, and it's in subtitles, right? And, and, and it's funny, I'm saying to myself, what kid's movie is in subtitles, right? And it's, you know, it, it's no different than any action film with, with subtitles. Um, and it's funny because they have subtitles and you learn throughout the movie that you see, you know, artifacts and ancient language that they actually, again, created their own language for this film. Yeah. Which is, which is incredible, right? This is like, this is some deep Tolkien crap going on here. Uh, so, yeah, they, they kind of based it off like uh, the Vikings and Iceland type, uh, you know, literature. And they, they kind of wrote their own language and, and, and alphabet for this. Well, I mean, we're kind of skipping ahead, but um, I just want to talk a little bit about specifically the reviews. I tried really hard to find the actual reviews for this film. And unfortunately, being a 20 year old movie. There are a lot of these reviews were online, but not well preserved. So if you actually click to see full review on Rotten Tomatoes, you'll end up a lot of times at either something that was in a website's archives and is now paywalled or just simply doesn't exist on the current version of the website. But the ones I could find, the main gripes of this movie uh, pretty much fall into like four categories. Uh, the, the critics feel that this was a movie without an audience. Uh, that who who is this for? Which I think is just a bit of a too narrow scope where they, they believe that there is this specific audience that sees Disney animated films. And this is not a film that fits that audience. Uh, the next most common one uh, that that seemed to be a pretty widespread complaint was that this movie is too adult for kids, but too kiddie for adults. And again, we're looking at 20 years ago. Now, adult animation is one of the most common like form there's so, mm-hmm. so many different so, animated shows meant for adults so that's a, that's a great point we're gonna talk about all the characters in a second so I, don't, I won't get too deep but i think that's where you nailed it with the uh, you know it, it's too young for adults and too old for kids where the storyline itself is is definitely it could go either way right it could go towards a kid or an adult it's just you know it's an, an adventure story and a discovery story um but I think with the characters, right, it's funny because there's some characters that can really resonate with adults. And then there's a few, I mean, even Milo, right, the main character, he definitely can resonate with a kid, you know. So there, there's some, you have the, uh, the, the, the the digger guy, uh, the, the minor guy, whatever his name is. Uh, he's definitely, you know, he throws in some fun jokes for the kids that would understand and stuff like that. So I think it's a tough combination. And I think that's a little bit of the confusion here is the characters, which personally, I love the characters. I think they're very diverse, and we'll, we'll talk about each one of them in a minute. But I think that's where it does get a little bit of confusion and separate that, you know, kid slash adult borderline. Because the story itself, um, just like a lot of Disney stories, they're kid-friendly, but they have that that adult theme in and, and, you know, detail, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a very complex... There's a lot of complexities. I mean, it, it, it it's a simple kind of classic adventure movie storyline but they're going to this totally foreign place that is a fully realized world that has to build its own mythology and then have you understand that mythology for the Mm -hmm. climax of the film to make sense which i think is where they're getting at 
you know, is it too adult for kids? Is a kid going to be able to follow the third act of this film? That's fair. And I don't have kids, but I, I think that this might be difficult for like a eight or nine year old kid who's, you know, not super into this stuff to, yeah. to follow what exactly is going on in, in the third act of this movie. That's fair. Uh, the other big complaint was, again, viewing Disney movies through this really narrow lens, pretty much they've all been musicals up to this point. And mm. this has a score. There is no yep. Agreed. big Tarzan, Phil Collins song. There's no part of this world. Uh, it is purely a scored thing like you would find for like a drama movie for no, adults. Pirates of the Caribbean. For, yep. Pirates of the Caribbean has this, this fantastic score. Obviously, this score isn't that level, I think. But I don't think it's a bad score. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think it does its job. At the at the pace and and, and the action and excitement level, um, I guess I should rewind for a second for those that still have never even seen the movie Atlantis. One, do yourself a favor to go see it. But two, um, let me give you the thirty second elevator speech of what it is about. Right, Milo is the main character. He works at this museum. He's a big you know archaeologist. You know, well, he's just, actually just, that, he's not archaeologist. He's a he's a linguist. He studies languages. That's right. Like, and yep. maps. He's a linguist and a cartographer. Because Correct. his grandfather was also a linguist and cartographer. Correct, and his grandfather was—I is, is, don't want to say famous, but a well-known, um, you know, well-known in a little bit of a way. And um, he comes across. He keeps telling all these the, the museum people he wants to be funded that he'll find Atlantis. Um, short story is he he meets up with his grandfather's good pal who wants to fund the expedition. Um, and and this expedition is not like what you would think. This is like a multi-million-dollar. Uh, expedition to go find. They have the top of the line technologies and weapons and warfare and every type of. I think there's 200 people, right, that go on yep. this journey. Um, and of course, they go find Atlantis. I mean, obviously, you can assume they find it. It's pretty obvious. It's not really a spoiler alert. And I'd say they find it halfway through the movie. I'd no, it's about less. This. I think it's less than halfway. This is really. Uh, yeah, I think they I find think... it maybe a third of the way in. Um, I will say. So this is where I want to stop and ask the question before we, and then we can talk a little bit more about the story and the characters. Is the journey better than the destination? And what I mean by that is, for me, a lot of these films, um, I love, love, love the journey. Right? It's it's like Lord of the Rings in a way. Most, you know, ninety percent of Lord of the Rings is about the journey and adventure. In this film, like you said, thirty percent is about the journey and adventure. I think that thirty percent is absolutely fantastic film. Right, I think all the different ideas that they come up with, clever. However, I feel like the, the last two-thirds of once they get there and then the storyline and stuff, I feel like it starts to fall apart and they're kind of run to the point where, like, great, we found Atlantis, what do we do? I, I mean, how do you feel? So, I like the journey a lot. I also really like that middle third where they found Atlantis, but before we've gotten to like the really okay. climactic stuff, yep. because so much passion and care went into crafting that world of Atlantis, that seeing it through the eyes of the people on the expedition and them realizing the, the wonder and the majesty of this society that has been untouched by the outside world for millennia and, yep. and them finding out that, oh, this has actually been untouched for millennia, that all these people are ageless and discovering why. And the people discovering, you know, that 
they don't have the keys to their own society, but Milo, through his understanding of their language, which has been lost to time, and kind of like a Tower of Babel thing um, to these people, him being able to unlock their future for them, uh, I find that fascinating. Again, I love this movie, and you have to be kind of into it to follow that's yeah. really like what's going on. I think the 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 kind of disappointing thing is that because this is a Disney movie, it can't be super long, that the last third, they have all these things they have to tie up, mm -hmm. and they have to tie them up through, you know, exciting action and climax, but it still feels kind of rushed and kind of rote, and they have to, like, very quickly explain everything that's going on, and then yeah. make that the MacGuffin that they're after, and then have the action, and then have the, the climax. No, um, I, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I get it. Listen, I, I overall, this movie is better than I expected. It's going to be one of my, you know, cult favorites. Um, but I do think the movie starts off so strong. It does, like you said, progress. If we can, if we brought it down into thirds, I think it does get a little worse, worse and worse. Where I think the first third's amazing. Second one, like you said, is still fun because now you're discovering Atlantis. And then the third part. Uh, I don't want to say plot twist, but but more of uh, you know the turmoil. Where again, we've seen it before, right? We've seen that same Avatar. We just talked about Avatar. Yeah. It's 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 the same storyline in a weird way, right? This so, this actually remarkably similar to Avatar in its theme. Uh, this yes. this theme of anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism uh, of of the people being colonizers, the heroes being colonizers and having to realize that and, and turn it around is not something you commonly see in Western media, but both Avatar and this movie feature that as a central theme, mm -hmm. which is another reason both of those movies are movies that people sometimes bounce off of because the very concept is foreign to them because uh, that's not how yep. Western media works. Correct. And I, I just think, again, with that, I would have loved to see something that we've never seen before, which, again, I know that's hard. That's easy for me to say, but it is something that we've seen multiple times in other films. But I will say the end kind of unique battle with like the hot air balloon and stuff like that. That is a very cool, unique scene. Yes. Um, all that, you know, that 10 minute, um, you know, the, you know, the big battle, as you want to call it that. Uh, so, yeah, overall, you know, again, haven't seen this movie really ever. I, I really, really enjoyed it. If I had to give it a Rotten Tomato score, I'm thinking like 87, 85% around there. Yeah, I 100% feel the same yeah. way. And I think what you hit on that first part, I think so much of what makes the journey so, so strong is the characters in this movie. The characters yep. in this movie are amazing. They're one of the things that critics universally pretty much across the board, the art style and the characters were were well liked. Um, yes. I think a big part of that is the characters themselves were super super varied, and in my opinion, kind of ahead mm. of their time. We don't see this variety in even Disney movies today. There's old characters portrayed in as capable and adult, and and that they could they're just as good. And they're not just there to, yeah. to be extra weight. There's fat characters. There's not all white characters. Um, there, this, this just this diversity and different styles of characters um, that you don't tend to see in Disney movies. You tend to see, all right, this is Moana. It's about Polynesian people. Mm -hmm. All the characters are Polynesian or Princess and the Frog. They're all Southern. Because of the nature of the story, they were able to make mm -hmm 
a, a, a diverse group of characters. And I think everybody can identify. You're talking about the minor. He's very obviously a comic yep. relief character. Um, then there's the explosive technician. And, you know, he yep. is ends up being a very character with a lot of depth. Yeah. So, but I, I think mean, that's the point is they, they give all these amazing bat stories for each character, right? Like uh, Vinny, the, the explosive guy, they, they said he broke out of a Russian jail. Uh, you know, Audrey, the, the the steam mechanic, you know, she's like a 16-year-old girl who, you know, is taken over for her dad. You know, so they, they, they really gave a little bit of backstory about each character, which is amazing. Um, I did and find all those backstories right, pay off in the third act when we do. find out that their backstories, their motivation for going on this expedition yep. is why they were willing to do the things for the, the yeah. it turns out the bad people who were take, took over the expedition, what, what made them want to do that. And then the fact that their motivations for wanting to get this money to make their lives better were, were pure. So they were able to, to go back to the good side. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't want to give, I think everybody should watch this movie. So I'm trying I, I to, agree. To kind of dance around the the big plot so, points at the I, end. I agree. But, so let's do this. I'm gonna I'm just gonna name off the characters really quick and stop me if you have something to say about them, just so you guys understand a little bit more about the characters, right? So you have the main commander, uh, who's who's Lyle, whatever his name is. Uh, he's just he's kind of he's running the expedition. He's in charge. He's kind of like ex-military. Um, you kind of have his right hand woman, Helga, who's trying to just again the chief in charge. You know, ground missions. Uh, you have Vinny the Explosive, again, Aldra, who's your mechanic. You got Dr. Joshua Strongbear, who's again, he's uh he's like the the the, the doctor, right? If anybody gets injured or anything like that, he's well, there. He's this he's a kindly, strong yes. African American character. Yeah. Pretty far ahead at the time before, you know, we saw yeah. these characters commonly uh represented in um in Disney films. Correct. Uh you have the mole, who again, he's like a minor digger who for some reason, really reminds me of the Underminer, the villain from Incredibles 2. Um, I have to assume there was some type of influence between the two there. Um, even uh, Preston Whitmore, who's the the guy that is funding this whole project, um, what an amazing, fun character too, right? The typical older kind of he's going crazy, losing his mind, but it's in reality, like the eccentric millionaire. It's, but he, but he's really genius at the at at the core, you know what I'm saying? Um, but that's really the expedition. And then you have the uh, the other crazy old guy, which I don't even know what his what his his job was. The the Jebediah the guy. Oh, he was the cook. That's right, the cook. Jebediah. One of the cook. most memorable scenes of the movie when he's asking uh, what all these uh, what all these <laughs> vegetables and green leaves are that they're making uh, him bring on the expedition is. That's right, and uh, I think we already mentioned Milo, and then you have uh, what's her name, Bertha, or the whatever the woman's name is, who uh, the radio operator. She's just, but she's amazing. She reminds me a lot of Roz from like one hundred percent. Like this is the same character. Uh, she's funny. She she doesn't hold anything back. She's witty. She she's just um, an amazing amazing character. So again, the expedition is so diverse, and again, this is what makes it so much fun to watch. These characters grow, right? And and you see, like I said, this evil you know Russian explosive guy Vinny, and then you know you find out the the, the story behind him is that his his parents owned a, a you know a florist. You know, it's like and, and then again that that plays and that, that's his true love that he. Just wants yeah. to be a florist and, and do right. flowers for people's weddings. So it's uh the characters are amazing. 
I will say in the research I found, they actually had another explorer. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, Tim, but it was supposed to be a magician. And the reason they originally added the magician was is the magician they figured had magic or magic powers of some form where he could help along the journey, whether it was blow up a rock or or, or, or date a hole or, or make a bridge or whatever it was. And they decided that last minute, it was kind of a cop-out, right? Because if you do that, you kind of lose everything else for all the other characters. Um, so I'm kind of glad they, they pulled this idea of adding a magician uh, from this, whether it was real magic or fake magic, I don't really understand or know, but uh, the characters 100% is what made this movie so much fun. It really is. Did you have a favorite? You know, it's funny because Milo is just a classic lovable guy. But if I wanted to pit somebody somebody else, I, I'm going to have to say the radio technician, older woman, Birth. I mean, she was she was great. She was fun. Yeah, I agree. Actually, those are my two favorites, too. Yeah. Huge fan of Milo. Milo is one of those characters where it's he's the hero, but he's the type of hero where the type of person who's into this film sees themselves in him. Yeah. Uh, but Birth is just a great character. This older woman comedic character who's still portrayed as extremely competent absolutely um, yep and actually bertha is the reason that this film gets one of those little banners in the top corner on disney plus to warn you that about something uh she chain smokes a cigarette yeah. throughout oh, the gosh. whole movie because this takes place around the time frame of world war one mm. before we knew smoking was really bad uh, and we would certainly never see that in a Disney movie these days, but she is animated smoking a cigarette um, for every scene you see her in in this movie. Uh, so there's a little warning about tobacco use in the top corner every once in a while if you're watching this on the old Disney Plus. Yep. yep. Yeah, it's um, she, she's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So did you have a, a favorite scene? We talked about the three acts. Um, again, it has to be somewhere along the exploring expedition part where i think for whatever reason i thought it was just um very comical very fun when they camp out right so they they're, they're camping they're setting up their tents and you have all the characters trying to play in their parts this is when a lot of the characters start telling their bat story this is when the the cook is starting to make dinner for everybody and serving them dinner uh this is when you know again they're, they're talking about bertha saying watch out she snores and she sleeps walked in the nude and then um you know milo gets up and that's when he really first to discover the natives of of atlantis so i think so much happens in that little scene but it's also so fun so i think that's one of the scenes that really uh sticks out for me what about you uh my, I have two favorites. One is, I think, the closest what this film has to an iconic scene, and that's where they blow up a big rock formation to make a bridge in about five yeah. seconds after yep. they make it seem like to be a big deal how they get across it. And, uh, you know, it just takes them like two seconds to pull up this thing and drive all their giant digging vehicles across it. <laughs> the other one is in the end, right at the beginning of the third act, when uh, it seems like all hope is lost for the heroes, and Milo kind of rallies the troops and says, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but we need to do it. And he shows them all how to use the Atlantean crystals to power up the ancient flying machines yeah. that even the yep. Atlantean people. And you kind of get this really cool, like uh, very similar, to like a Avengers assemble, you know, Star Wars, when all the X-Wings come out of hyperspace and the good guys are going to like try to beat the odds and beat the bad guys sort of thing. Yep. So that, that was those were my two favorite scenes. 
All right. A little bit on the background of how this movie got made. Um, I was actually born in the uh, dining room of a terrible uh, Mexican restaurant in Burbank, California, outside Disney Studios that is long, long gone. Uh, the core production team, led by Don Hahn, um, who made up this movie, were all alums who had just finished making Hunchback. They really enjoyed working together, and they wanted to make another movie together. These guys also worked together, uh, most of them, on Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. So this is really all-star, all-stars. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, the, uh, the story, as Don Hahn has told it um, about this movie a couple of times, is uh, that they were down in pictures of margaritas, eating some nachos, and um, talking about how Disney makes, quote-unquote, fantasy land movies. Talking about the this is kind of the first time they really started talking about the fusion of the parks and movies as, as a synergy directly then and there. And then he asked, what does an adventure mo- land movie look yeah. like? Uh, they said, you know, Jules Verne inspired and uh, kind of spiraled from there. Talking about different works of Jules Verne. Obviously, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a big inspiration here. But also uh, some of his other movies or uh, other books were... Um, inspiration for this uh after that faithful meeting um don Hahn pitched it to uh eisner he says this was the easiest disney film he ever got greenlit as it was the height of the so-called disney war where eisner was fighting um with roy disney to uh keep control of the company and also both of them are fighting to stop corporate raiders from doing a hostile takeover and stock buyback of the movie or of um of Disney. So at this point Eisner was way too busy with all this to worry about the most senior creatives at Walt Disney Studio Animation Studios um like what kind of movie they're going to make. So he was like, "Yeah, Don, sure, go ahead, whatever you want to do. You have the budget, you have the animators, mm-hmm. just go for it." Um they originally got the script from uh or gave the script writing duties to Joss Whedon, uh, the creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who would go on to make Star Wars stuff. Uh, But he actually got pulled from the project to work on other Disney stuff. Uh, There was interviews with him uh, like 10 years later where he said there's not a shred of him in the final film. Uh, So it was later handed off and written by... um, uh, Drew, do you have it in front of you? It's... uh, that he wrote Brother Bear, he wrote um, Hunchback. Um, Tab Murphy. Tab, yeah. An- another Disney legend, uh, very, very senior guy at Disney Animation Studios. Uh, the big outlier here, and I think what truly makes this movie special, is the production designer for this movie was Mike Mignola. Uh, legendary comic artist, creator of Rocket Raccoon. Did a ton of Marvel stuff, did a ton of Batman stuff. But what he really known is known for is he is the Dark Horse Comics guy. He created Hellboy, wrote mm-hmm. the story, did the art style. And he has this very distinct art style of very flat and angular lines. And he made sure, and Disney and, and Don Hahn trusted him to really put his art style on this movie and have all the animators follow it. And that remains very, very true throughout this production. And I just have to say, I absolutely love this art style. It's one of the first thing I noticed. It's like that flat texture and similar to a comic book, right? With the bold 
outlines of the characters, right? And yeah, it's um, and when I say flat, right? So you know, you look at like uh, you know, Milo's skin. It's really they don't try to make it anything special with like uh. There's no shadows or anything. It, shadows it, it, or or fade in like a color. It's more like again, it's just a, a straight color with that really black, thick, bold line work. And it's really almost never it curved tough. lines. No, yeah. So yep, if you want to create an elbow, you maybe extend the line just a tiny bit, and then just make another straight line. Yeah, it's uh, I love 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 that art style. It's it's one of those. Things. If you don't watch this movie, just look up screenshots so you can at least see this art style. This, this uh, was the other thing, along with the, the the characters and their uniqueness, the art style of this movie universally praised, and a huge part of why people who might just think this is another Disney movie enjoy this movie because the art style is so distinct and so beautiful. The other thing is. Um, and this is kind of a signature Mike Mignola thing is he uses like a very similar color palette in a yep. scene. So if it's all grays, it will be all grays. And then he'll pick one color, like a yellow, like the submarine windows will be yellow and that bright yellow will just make everything pop or everything will be tan. And then there'll be like a neon blue to really pop. And that's, that's also carried out throughout the film. All, all the cells will seem to be one color with one highlight that's mm-hmm. really contrasts it. It kind uh, of makes the, the character design of Milo look like he's a lost lawn brother of Tarzan. And and it might be yes. because of, but I think what really stood out at me was like the hands. If you look at the hands, they both have like very large hands. And again, it's that graphic of not really round finger. It's more of a straight line. Uh, but yeah, that I don't know why it, it just popped out at me. I don't, it sounds like, are you familiar with Hellboy? Mike McNola's like longest yeah. running work. So that's like Hellboy's thing is he has gigantic hands, which is also kind of Mike Mignola's thing. Because even like Abe Sapien has like very long and large. He often makes characters with long, expressive hands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and Milo tends to talk with his hands, which works very well to make him smooth and expressive in the film. And it's Um, funny because I think Milo's character design is quite different than some of the other adventurers, right? Yes. Because he, like you said, has very straight lines, whereas if you look at some of the other characters, they add a lot of curvatures. So it's funny because, you know, and if you look at Whitmore, I think Whitmore is kind of the same character design, but it makes him pop even more in those scenes, which I don't know why, but I really, it just works. It just really works. I wouldn't be surprised that I didn't see anything this... Milo looks like a Mike McDola comic book character. So mm-hmm. maybe Milo, he had more of a hand in and the other characters may have been developed by other Disney people. So That's there's true. less of a hand in, in designing them. That's fair. That could be true. Uh, the other thing that I think is really unique about this movie is um, the use of the, the, the time period and the technology because it's set in this like world war one era it uses this really cool style. It's not steampunk. It's more of like a diesel punk where like it's combining Victorian technology with like early automobiles and flying machines and submarines to make this kind of Jules Verne, but 30 years later. And it, it, it's this really cool technology style that you don't see. And that is only for the expedition because once they reach Atlantis, as Don Hahn said, they wanted to avoid this traditional representation of Atlantis that we've seen from the beginning of film of it's a Greek city underwater. And they they went to the, the these caverns in Mexico to see what it'd be like underground. And then they 
took and kind of deconstructed and combined Mayan, Tibetan, Indian, and Cambodian architecture and kind of like gave it a totally unique look um, and really embraced this Southeast Asian style of, of what those cities look like, especially Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand with, uh, you know, markets and tents and then and uh, the Mayan and Tibetan tattooing. One of the mm-hmm. first things when they arrive in Atlantis, Milo sees um, uh, one of the Atlanteans giving another Atlantean these, these magical tattoos. Um, as we touched on, uh, the movie kind of centers around the idea of Milo being this linguist who has carried on his grandfather, who was also a linguist, work with this journal and deciphered the language. Uh, the language was designed by uh, Mark Okerand, who's the ling- uh, linguist I spoke of earlier, who designed Klingon, and it is a fully functional spoken and written language that exists solely for this movie. As Drew touched on, it was based kind of on um, runes, Viking runes. And uh, that Viking connection is actually part of uh, a they spent $5 million to make this opening scene featuring Vikings searching for the journal. Uh, and it was basically fully animated, fully colored, and then scrapped because the movie was not about finding the journal. It was about finding Atlantis. So they didn't want to have this like opening about searching for the journal and then have the movie be about searching for Atlantis. So they made the opening instead about how Atlantis became sunken and hidden from the world instead of this, this, mm-hmm. you know, thing so about, I, I was very Ecuador. thrown off by this, right? Cause my, but the way the movie builds, I'm like, all right, we're going to, I like this. We're going on a journey. You know, it's like, you know, in a video game, you don't go find the key before you can open the, the dungeon or the, you know, whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I was excited for that. And then I was like, Oh, okay. That, I'm okay with, you know, but, um, yeah, I, you know what? You get it, right? Because this goes back to the kids' movie, trying to keep it to a more kid-friendly length, where this probably would have pushed two hours, right, if they added this whole other journey or expedition. You're not going to really wrap that up too quickly. So I get it in a way, you know. But, yeah, it is what it is. So this wasting $5 million was kind of part of the reason why there were some, some issues with the production. The other big one was... Um, this movie was in the middle of production when um, the Columbine tragedy happened. And this was really the first time we really saw that kind of violence in our homes, on the news. And um, media companies really reacted strongly to that and were, for the next couple of years, very cautious about any kind of representation of violence in kids' media. So there was originally planned to be a lot more big action set pieces in this movie. And all of those were removed from the film and exposition was added instead. And the only one that remained was the the climax of the film because that was necessary to the story. But there was originally supposed to be a lot more direct conflict between groups um, that that did not make it into the original cut. Can can Um, we just say, speaking of that, um, this is a film where you have 200 people set off on an expedition. All I'm going to say, I don't want to spoil it, <laughs> a lot less return. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, and that kind of gets lot, overlooked. A lot less. And it, it's very obvious when there's these deaths happening. Um, and on that topic, I have to ask, they have these, you know, if 
200 people, there's probably 180 of them that are just, you know, they're they're extras, as one may say. They're they're add-ons. They're they're soldiers. But what's up with them wearing like the the stormtrooper masks? Like, why can't they just be? I mean, is that an animation? Right. My guess is that's going to be an animation um, decision where. Listen, if we put this weird mask and breathing apparatus on them, we don't have to design 170 unique looking characters. Or you know, oh, even, I, I think that's 20. a huge part of it. And yeah. I think it also just makes it so that once the turn happens, it's very obvious these are bad guys. These are stormtroopers as you put it. We yeah. immediately identify especially since this takes place in the period around World War 1. It's very easy to say, oh, a guy with a gas mask and a that style army helmet, you know, that's not a good guy, you know? Yeah, no, I, I just thought it was was weird. I mean, you get it from a film point of view, but from like an actual, you know, diving into this film, you're like, I it does I don't I don't get it. Like it's not like you needed the mask because the explorers and or the main characters aren't wearing them. So I get it from the movie choice. Doesn't really continuity wise make too much sense. Yeah. And two two last notes on the production. This is actually you wouldn't know it unless you watch the movie with this kind of looking for this. But this was the first Disney movie, Disney animated movie to use extensively uh, computer aided graphics. But it's not done in the way that, oh, that's, you know, that was drawn by a computer. It's more that they made the vehicles and the shapes of the, the landscape and stuff as 3D models, and then applied hand-drawn textures over them. Um, I think it looks really stunning in some spots. You'll see these vehicles, and and they'll make a turn, and it almost looks like, um, if you're familiar with like Zelda uh, Wind Waker, very mm-hmm. similar to that style of... Um, of graphics, like but one of my intricate. favorite video games, Tim. Maybe that's maybe that's why I connected so well with this. But I, did you get that vibe, like from how the the computer graphics, especially for like the vehicles yeah. and the cliffs and stuff, look? Like there was there's a couple like montage scenes, right when they're when they're making their journey right to Atlantis. You're right, and it, they'll play a little bit of a score. They zoom way out and they show these vehicles driving through caverns and 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 through and some marines. Yes, it's it's that exact feel because. It's like a a two D side scrolling, you know, vision. But then you'll see them kind of turn a little bit towards the screen and stuff. I know exactly what you're saying. It's a it's a very unique animation. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then the other thing you speak about zooming in and out and stuff. This is one of the only Disney animated filters features to ever be filmed in anamorphic widescreen. Um, I am not a like technical film guy. I tried to figure out. This is basically what it means is. If they had wanted to do this in a traditional widescreen, it would have required that they got new desks and new uh, equipment for all the animators to draw in that widescreen format and also new cameras to film the animation cells. And I guess with this anamorphic widescreen is you film in a standard uh, square aspect ratio and then there's like a distortion and a crop to uh to to resize it but the the end result is is this is filmed in cinescopic widescreen uh so there was a lot more room to play and kind of pull back the camera and show these grand uh vistas and in fact the uh final scene of this movie that the pullout shot at the end is Mm -hmm. to this day considered the most difficult and technically complex 
uh, animation sequence in any uh, Disney film. It's uh, kind of tight in on it, the city itself of Atlantis, kind of as we saw it in the final scenes of the movie. And then the camera goes back for probably a full 30 seconds, and you see that Atlantis is now thriving, and there's like a whole series of islands around it, and the people have gotten their culture back, and they're all living their day-to-day lives, and this is incredibly complex scene that is full frame, fills up the whole widescreen with hundreds of people and vehicles and, and topographical features and stuff. Just an absolutely stunning yep. sequence of animation. Absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the, the history and production of this movie. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I, we, I think we've wrapped it up well. I think we're going to move on to the next little part here. Yeah, so Atlantis in the parks. There is none. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, this movie was the first of the quote-unquote new way, the way we do it now, of how movies make it into the parks. Up until this point, um, Disney just assumed they were all hits and pre-planned. This goes back to Walt's day, you know, that if 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 we're going to have an animated film and, and kids are going to love it, we're going to make sure that right around, if not before that movie comes out in theaters, there is some attraction, show, building, something in the parks that represents it. And this was kind of where Eisner is starting to get told to rein it in funding-wise and budget-wise and all that stuff. So they really flipped the script to, all right, if if these movies do well and people love it, then they're still going to love it four years down the line when we get an attraction in place. So uh, this was the first movie that that framework was applied to. And um, though this movie was not a total flop, it did turn a modest profit a huge portion of that profit was made overseas. I believe it made $183 million against a hundred, approximately $100 million budget. But only about $80 million of that was made in the domestic box office. So Disney was real scared to, um, you know, make a big presence in their domestic parks with this. Now, what was planned for this movie in the parks? That's a whole other thing. When you have a team of all-stars like they did making this, they wanted to go big in the parks for this movie. Um, plans for a huge retheme, major overhaul of the submarine voyage at Disneyland um, into a total Atlantis attraction that was like much less about you're in a submarine, we're going to see some animatronics of fish, and we're going to go on a boring little journey into this cool action-packed thing. Um, where you saw the Leviathan, you were attacked, and you got away, and you discovered the city of Atlantis. That was pretty, pretty far along. They even had teaser posters for this in the Disneyland parks for a short time. And at least one of the uh, submarine vehicles was removed from um, the submarine voyage attraction. And the interior was mocked up into what it would look like. And narration for the ride was done to show Don Hahn and the production team what it would be like um, and get their input for this ride overhaul. Um, all is actually not lost. If you read descriptions of what this would have been, it is incredibly serious, incredibly similar to the 20,000 Leagues Under a Sea um, attraction at Tokyo Disney Sea in uh, the Jules Verne section of the park. So uh, that luckily, a lot of that remains. You do get attacked by a giant squid. You do escape. You do find the lost city of Atlantis. It's not this representation of Atlantis. It's it's a different Atlantis where the people are merfolk. But uh, at least some of those cool ideas did get to live on at Disney Sea. 
Uh, I think that would have been neat. What would have been more neat is what was planned for the Magic Kingdom if this movie had been a huge hit. And that was another mountain to go along with the iconic Splash, Space, and Big Thunder. It was going to be called Fire Mountain. I believe this not would not have been the name that went to press because <laughs> uh, that's a very awkward name for a roller coaster, if you ask me. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, uh, this was going to be like a very thematic roller coaster that represented the volcano erupting in this movie and them trying to escape from the lava and get back to the relative safety of the city of Atlantis. Um, and once that was done, uh, it, Adventureland and the Magic Kingdom would receive a major Atlantis-themed expansion that was kind of going to be uh, the expedition base of, of where the adventurers set off from. And, you know, have some shops and restaurants and heavily themed areas uh, to, before you head to uh, Fire Mountain. Again, this Fire Mountain sounds like the Imagineers <laughs> did borrow a lot of this stuff for the Journey to the Center of the Earth ride, also mm -hmm. in um, the Jules Verne area of Disney Sea. So if you're a fan of this kind of stuff, if you're a fan of Jules Verne, if you're a fan of this aesthetic, I've said it before, I'll say it again, when you can you got to check out Tokyo Disney Sea. Uh, but I do wish we had gotten some of this stuff in our parks because I think now in this day and age, this kind of stuff, even if Atlantis did not have this new status as a cult classic, these would be super popular things. Mm. Don't, don't you agree? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. As like you said, Fire Mountain is, is odd. Because you think Atlantis, you don't really think fire at all. You know, it should be Water Mountain or something. But, I, I mean, if you watch the movie, you'll understand it a little bit more. But, again, it's not the first thing you think of. Um, yeah, I think I think Atlantis is so much bigger than just Disney, right? I, I think that there's so many things you could do. And maybe, maybe that's kind of... Not, I don't want to say where Disney failed. But maybe that's where it didn't take off as much, right? Um when, when I hear the word Atlantis, the first thing that comes to my mind is, I'm going to be honest, not this Disney film. You, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah. You know, when you hear the word Moana or even, even Cinderella, which has been around forever, you still think Disney. And when you think, you know, Atlantis, the you know, it's just, again, it's not Disney in my eyes because so many of the people in the world know Atlantis as the lost city, right? It's in Hotel Transylvania 3. It's in it's in that movie nowadays. Um, you can go on uh, to the Bahamas. You can go to Atlantis, the resort. So I think there's so many other, you know, media and other things with the, you know, the word Atlantis is, I think that's where it kind of, again, not, I don't want to say failed. I think that's where it hurt. I think that's where it hurt. Isn't there Disney Atlantis the attraction to this day just down the street at Universal Studios Orlando? No, but the, I think that's SeaWorld. I think, uh, correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, the walkthrough. Oh, that's Poseidon. Poseidon. Sorry. But Very similar. SeaWorld yeah. has an a, a attraction. Um, I think I think you're right. I mean, I at the end of the day, this is a public domain thing because it's a myth. And as we said at the top, uh, you know, P Plato wrote about this. It's believed that the city of Atlantis existed because Plato wrote about it so extensively. And in fact, the the... The general round shape of the island and the city of Atlantis in this film is, is based on Plato talking about it being a perfect circle uh, for the city itself. Yeah. Yep. Uh, SeaWorld does have an attraction 
called Journey to Atlantis. I remember going on this. I, I think it was one of the first ever. It's like a, it, it, you know, you sit in a boat similar to, let me say, it's similar to um, Splash Mountain. Uh, however, it's much more intense where it kind of turns into like a coaster. So it's almost like a drop slash coaster, but also, you know, where you have... The, it, it's actually a really cool ride. Uh, we should probably talk about it in the future at some point, and maybe we will. But um, there is... It is. So that's another thing. Like, it's just... The Atlantis is such a, a non-Disney term that I think they're trying to... I think that's where it kind of hurt Disney. So uh, I just have a couple quick questions to finish it off. Is this the Society of Explorers and Adventurers movie? Had, if this had done well... Is this that C thing? Could this have turned into that C th- mainstream representation of C that Parks fans want so bad that every time it gets teased that there's going to be a C connection in, in Disney movies? If this had done well, could this have turned into a whole C franchise? Um, y- yes and yes and no. Um, I, I don't know a ton of the history with the C stuff, but... I think, it, I think it could have been part of it. Yeah, I think it could have been part of the lore, definitely. I mean, especially with, uh, you know, Whitmore and the grandfather, which we don't really meet in the film. Um, there could have been some deep connection right there, and, and it could have tied in definitely in some form of way. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, guess I, I, I definitely think so. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I think there's hard evidence that this is the case. Um, there was supposed to be a Atlantis TV show. Um, okay. And what it was going to be was not Atlantis. It was going to be the crew investigating all these other things, whether it's the, you know, different things from mythology, different yeah. um, legends and rumors and things from uh, throughout history. And... It would have pulled in other things. In fact, there the first three episodes of the show were produced, and then once the show was canceled because the movie didn't do that well, it was they were slightly reanimated and packaged as Atlantis: Milo's Return, which was the direct-to-video sequel that came out in 2003. The fourth episode that they did not get a chance to start animating would have featured uh, Demona from gargoyles bringing that world into this atlantis world so they were already trying to wrap other things with the real world and this world of atlantis in i think disney had big plans for this had it been more successful that that's tough right um because i think that is a niche market right don't get me wrong people like me and you and there's, there's thousands of other people that would love it but I think that's difficult where you start tying them in and then you still have to make the standalone film or French or whatever you do or else it's going to not work for, for everybody. But that's that's a tough one because, like I said, you know, I hate to compare it to um, Kingdom Hearts, let's say. But, but Kingdom Hearts is one of those Disney video game series where you can't just play one or two games you get, and the, the story intertwines and there's spinoffs and there's mobile games and it's like at, at, at a certain point, you 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 kind of screw it up, right? So the the idea of it is is great on paper, but it only really works for people that are going to stick with it and really dive into it. You know what I'm saying? 
So I think that's the perfect segue to my next question for you. If this movie was announced tomorrow and there was no big changes other than to modernize it a little bit in pacing and story and, and you know, resolution and technology and stuff, um, would the reception be different in this age of adult animation, as I mentioned earlier, of MCU fever, of these kind of complex and nerdy stories being not only mainstream, but the most popular things, these things where people could really sink their teeth into the lore of it, would the reception be different? Would critics be writing, is this a movie without an audience? Is this something for people? Why aren't there musical numbers? Where's the Mm -hmm. princess? Why is the princess this weird thing? Blah, 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 blah. Do you think that people would just wholeheartedly embrace this because we live in a radically different world now? So I, I think that the end point there is is key. I think every Disney film that comes out now, whether it's Disney or Pixar, right? In, in a way, we almost have to look at them as the same. Um, you know, we looked at the last three big ones, right? We had Soul, Raya, and now Luca, where you know none of those really had this this new princess i mean raya technically has a princess but it, it's not like uh, a lot of the other previous princesses that we've seen so i think people will accept it but um i'm not sure either because you know the, the way the disney's pacing their films um I, I don't know if it would make a huge difference, Tim, to be honest. I, I, I don't think it would. I think it's going to be, you're still going to have your your people like, like Soul, right? Soul is a movie that came and, and, and it's gone. And some people love it. Some people love the soundtrack. Some people love the characters. But then there's, there's a lot of other people that said, I watched it. I enjoyed it. It's there. If I ever want to watch it again, but I probably won't. And and, and I don't know. I think... I think Atlantis would kind of fall in that category because it is for a little bit the older crowd and it, it's it's either for you or it's not really. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I just I really feel like that the people who it's for would get super into it and be begging for their this to be a whole series of films in a universe so it, and they would it, want the Disney Plus show and they would want the yeah. merchandise and the, you know, I, I don't disagree. The merchandise um, options are phenomenal with this, with this. And franchise. there's none. There's no merchandise for this. So when I was doing some research um, more recently, actually Don Hahn just got interviewed by D 23. So if you follow them, um, there's this nice article that just came out literally last week for the 20th anniversary that D 23 interviewed them, him. And he said that, you know, just recently last month or so, he came across a Facebook group that was like, maybe you're in it, Tim. No, like, I'm not in it, but I did read this article. I'm it, going to join it. I haven't got a chance it, yet. It, it's pretty much die hard. These people who love Atlantis, like I want more and more. And he came across this Facebook group and he said he was just amazed to see that there's 20,000 people on Facebook that are die hard Atlantis fans. And so and that kind of like in a weird way re-energizes you. Uh, because again, this is a film that's like, I don't want to say it was a flop and we're going to get to that in a minute, but a lot of people don't know about it. They've never seen it. They don't really know it exists today. So for him to now see that again, it's, it's 20,000 people strong and and probably growing. Um, he was kind of excited and re-energized, but to your point earlier, how much does Disney really control, right? So this movie obviously made a very, you know, small amount of money, but you're right. If Disney did make merchandise, if they made this part of an extra hours event, if they threw some, you know, Milo in, in one of the fantasy parades, if they did something, 
what does that do for the franchise or the film? Does it revive it? Does it give it more love? Does it say, hey, what's this guy? I wanted to I wanted to watch that movie. So it's funny how Disney actually controls their own destiny in a lot of stuff when it comes to the parts that they have control over. You know? And you alluded to it. We asked the question way up at the top of the intro. After all this, after watching it with a new set of eyes for the first time, do you think it's a flop or is this a forgotten classic? I'm going with forgotten classic. Uh, I, I don't think it's a flop. I think it's it, it's a fun, it's, again, I'm going to say artistic, and it's a really enjoyable film. Like I said, I loved the first third the, first third the best, but overall, the movie was a fun experience. I, I, I kind of glued to the TV as I was watching it, and it was one of those, like, I, I, I couldn't stop watching. So, I mean, obviously, I know your answer, but what's your overall opinion? Uh, no, I mean, obviously, I'm going to say Forgotten Classic. Um, I think it's interesting because we talked, you know, last, yeah, last middle of last week. And, you know, so it probably falls someplace in between. So it's good to hear that you think this is totally a Forgotten Classic. Um, I think if you haven't watched it, totally grab it, pull it down on Disney+. Plus. You'll be blown away by the art style at the very, very least. Uh, even if you only watch that first third when they're going on an adventure to find Atlantis and, you know, that that's all you want to see. I think that's worth it. Uh, I also think if, if anybody at Disney's listening, you ran, you're looking for ideas for live action. If you can do this one as a big budget live action with The Rock and John Cena and, you know, all the all the people you guys bring on for your live actions, there is not a better title, you know, that you 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 could do with some of these people with the right budget and the right cast. I mean, could you see The Rock as that doctor? I, I think doctor, that would just be yeah. incredible. Yeah, I, I, I mean, who would play Milo? Who do you, who do you got? Ah, man, that's a hard one. There's a lot of good young actors that, like, a, a Timothy Shamaway or however you pronounce that guy's name. That yeah, I, okay. I could see, like him. I could see Cena as the bad guy for sure. Oh yeah, I could too. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's um, there's a lot. Uh, th- yeah, it'd be fun. I think Milo would be. You, you, you're right. You're gonna play a, a quirky. You know, Milo might be better off with a no-name guy, to be honest. Um, just because or even those guys they pull up from like the Disney Channel original movies, then then yeah. they become big stars. Like I could yep. see him being one of those. So anyway, I think this would be an awesome, awesome live action remake with a big enough budget. I think but, that's uh, the problem, though, Tim. It would need a very big budget. Yeah, this would be a huge budget movie. This is like Avengers level budget. I don't yep. think anybody at Disney's willing to take that risk right now. No, no way. So. Uh, well, Tim, thank you for, for introducing me to Atlantis and making me watch it because I, I, I fell in love. Like I said, not quite as much as The Black Cauldron, but I think it's going to be added to my list. And if I ever do see some merch or something, I'll have to definitely now pick it up. Um, any last things to add? Are you good? No, I mean, I, I think I, I said my piece and uh, right. watch Atlantis. All right. And uh, folks, we want you to watch it. If you do watch it, let us know what your thoughts were. Um, you know, let us know on Facebook or send us an email or you're in Discord, come join in. But I said Discord is free uh, for everybody out there now, not just Patreon. So come over to join Discord. It's in our show notes. I'll pop, click the link, hit join, and you're in. Um, and I'm going to still hold true. If you guys go on to iTunes and write us a five-star review, we will get you out some stickers. Last week we sent some out. Uh, we're going to be sending more. Just We'll send them. We got them. We'll send them. Uh, give us a five-star review and we'll follow up with you guys to make sure we get you some stickers. Uh, but that is going to wrap up this episode of Atlantis Flop or Forgotten Classic. We really hope you enjoyed this. This is kind of a new series we're doing with the movies. And as always, thanks for listening to The Disney Guys Uncensored. After careful consideration, I decided not to.
Windorster Park.